This podcast is slightly longer than the usual podcast. It is, in fact, a slightly edited version of a live webinar I conducted recently for the EU-UK forum, which I chair. I hope you enjoy it. I'm delighted to welcome Anton Spizak, a senior fellow at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, who will discuss his new and much talked about paper called Fixing Brexit, a new agenda for a new partnership with the European Union. Before joining the TBI, Anton was a senior policy advisor in the Cabinet Office and more recently in the then Foreign and Commonwealth Office, where he worked on the Brexit negotiations. And before that, he held roles at the Financial Times, where he worked as a leader writer and at the Institute for Government and Rand Corporation. Welcome, Anton, and thank you for being with us this morning. Good morning, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. In the discussion that Anton and I are about to have, we would very much welcome your input and expertise. We will not have a formal Q&A session as such towards the end, but rather bring in your questions and comments as our conversation progresses. So please use the chat function on the right-hand side of your screen, and I will do my best to make you part of the conversation. So let's get cracking. Um, Anton, um, so I said in my introduction that the, the mood music has seem, seems to be improving. Uh, do, you, do you agree with that uh, assessment? Is, is that a recent phenomenon? And is it is likely to be sustainable? I think, I think the mood music has definitely changed in the last couple of weeks and months. I think there is now much more political willingness to find a way through the Northern Ireland Protocol dilemma. I think there's a real effort since the end of Liz Truss's premiership uh, to get into a more constructive mode of operating between the UK and the EU and look for a potential way through. That said, I don't think it's going to be easy in the next couple of weeks and months. I think we are just at the beginning of the process. And I think actually yesterday's statement between Mara Shevchevich and James Cleverly reflects that. I think there, you know, there is clearly an acknowledgement that some progress has been made especially on getting the data access for goods moving into Northern Ireland from Great Britain sorted. And there is some sort of implicit understanding of the kind of customs arrangement that that implies for traders moving those goods. But I think we are still just at the very beginning of this process where some of the most difficult questions, especially around regulation for agri-food, uh, and so-called SPS issues, those are the sanitary and phytosanitary regulations that create so much of the friction uh, between uh, GB and NI, and then the most difficult question, which is the question of governance and the role of the European Court of Justice, those really remain unresolved for now. So we are, I think, just at the beginning of this process, but I think, you know, um, the stars are aligning slowly, so to speak, to, to get us to a place where I think we could see some resolution uh, at least partial resolution before uh, the end of March, beginning of April. Well, we, of course, shouldn't fall into the trap of devoting the entire discussion to the Northern Ireland Protocol, but so much hinges on a, on the future relationship with a, on, on a, uh, some kind of agreement on the protocol between now, as you say, and, and maybe the, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement uh, in in later on in the spring, um, so you're 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 optimistic. Do you think that the the UK government, um, maybe more than the Commission, feels that 
there is an obligation to find some kind of deal by then because of the symbolic nature of the commemoration of the anniversary? I, th I think I think perhaps uh, I wouldn't be able to speak on behalf of the UK government and their motivations, but I think I think there is now a recognition uh, since the change of administration in the UK that the last thing in the current economic context that a country would need is a trade conflict. And if you look at you know the the the, the, the natural consequence of where we were a couple of months ago, which was the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, a very controversial piece of legislation seeking to rewrite unilaterally the protocol through primary legislation was going through very smoothly through the house the house of commons and then the lords um we we have now moved on to uh, to a different set of circumstances i think where the government is looking for a way out they are willing to look at a more constructive way of operating the relationship but i think ultimately we'll be in a position where on some of the most difficult questions, like the question of the European Court of Justice, I think it will be the UK government that will need to make some very big concessions. And then there the question is, can the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak sell this kind of deal to the hardliners in his own party, the ERG, and then to the DUP? And I think that is the really big question that you know is on everybody's lips in Brussels and around EU capitals right now. If we do get to a deal by the 10th of April, which is the Good Friday Agreement anniversary? Is the Prime Minister really in a position to get deal through his own uh, his own party, and does it lead to the Northern Ireland institutions uh, restoring in, in Northern Ireland? And I think there we just don't know at this point. I think it will really play out in in quite interesting but potentially unpredictable ways in the coming months. Right. In, in many ways, of course, even though it, it casts extremely long shadow of the Northern Ireland Protocol, at the same time, it seems that, and it's hinted uh, quite clearly in your, in your paper, that we can't keep waiting forever for some resolution of the protocol in terms of trying to develop a more strategic long-term relationship with the UK, with the EU, uh, on a broad range of issues. And you start in your paper by saying that the the time now, we need to have a, a new debate about how to fix Brexit, uh, more pragmatic, you say, and less ideological. Uh, are you reasonably confident that that is now starting to happen, irrespective of Rishi Sunak's uh, uh, activity now and trying to push some kind of resolution on the protocol? Uh, he is being seen as, a, even though he voted to leave uh, six and a half years ago, he is seen as, as a more pragmatic prime minister more broadly. Do you agree with that as well? I would probably agree with that. Um, I think I think there there are two major things that have changed in the last six nine months, uh, irrespective of the whole Northern Ireland question. And the first one is the public opinion. I think there has been a real and visible shift in the perceptions of Brexit by the British public, and there are really kind of two very crucial elements to this. One is the views of the consequences of Brexit, which in the polling that we did uh, back in the autumn, uh, in, in that polling it's become very clear that there is a very significant majority of people, including uh, a significant portion of people who voted to leave, who think that Brexit is really not delivering what it was promised to do. And I think it's about 65, 70% of people who think that. So that is a significant majority across the political spectrum. And, and then there is a second element to this, which is that most of the public do want to have a closer, more constructive, more functional relationship with the EU. They frankly don't want to talk about Brexit anymore. They just want to forget about it. You know, they're broadly traumatized by the whole process. They want to move to other issues that they actually care about, the economy, the NHS, all the other things which are much more pressing 
to them. So I think, you know, in, in the way that that relationship, uh, sorry, that, that public opinion is shifting, I think we'll see a new political space opening up for debating what kind of relationship the, the UK should have with the EU in the future. And I think the second thing that, that has changed in the last couple of months over the last year is obviously Ukraine, which, which shows that, you know, if we strip away all the kind of politics of, of this entire process, ultimately there is something much bigger at stake here. And that is the prosperity of the European continent and the collective security that we face together as the UK and the EU. And I think in that context, you know, the problems like Northern Ireland Protocol and the movement of sausages from Great Britain to Northern Ireland are really about something else. So, I mean, that's not to undermine the scale of the challenge in Northern Ireland, but it is to say that there is a much bigger prize in, in, for both the UK and the EU in having a constructive, functional, more strategic partnership that actually delivers on their mutual interests. So that's the kind of context in which we, we drafted the paper and in which we've been started to have conversations with people about what that relationship should look like. Uh, because I think we are just at the very beginning of this process and it's going to last, I, I suspect, the next couple of years. Right. Well, one of the merits, many merits of your papers is it actually quite a practical guide. It doesn't just lament a certain situation existing. You actually go about trying to identify a way forward. So you start by talking about what you call a, a sequenced package of solutions, starting with the UK investing, and I'm quoting your words back at you, substantive uh, political uh, capital into repairing trust with, with Brussels and other EU uh, capitals as well. How, how does the, what, what level of trust has to be re-established re and repaired as far as you're concerned? How bad is at the trust levels between the two sides? I mean, it was extraordinarily bad back last year. If you look at the time when Boris Johnson was still in office and, and his team was, his negotiating team was still in place, you know, that trust level was very, very low. And I think it really sunk after the introduction of no denying protocol bill by Liz Trust back last summer, which was seen as a completely unacceptable act of bad faith by, uh, by the other side. So I think, you know, we, I think we have now been able to bridge some of that trust deficit simply by resetting the political atmospheric of the relationship in the last couple of weeks. But I think there is a much bigger challenge here, which is that if you talk to people in Brussels or in London, anybody who's been involved in the negotiation, they are really scarred by this whole process. They just don't want to talk about it. They want to settle the problem of Northern Ireland. They want to move on. And if the UK wants to change the parameters of the relationship, they say, the UK is welcome to do that, but they will not get automatically a hearing from people in the positions of influence in EU institutions. So I think that's the context which we have to take into account when thinking about how to change that relationship, because it's not going to be easy. And it's not automatic that you know people will suddenly open up to the UK in ways that wasn't possible before. We have to remember the EU has its own set of interests in protecting the single market, in ensuring that the EU as a project is functioning well. Uh, and it's not going to just change those interests as a result of the UK changing its political mood music domestically, or in fact, because you know the government may change in London one day. So I think that's the crucial piece of context that we really have to take into account when thinking about this. Now, the way I've constructed my, uh, my proposal was fundamentally around a sequence of steps that have to be taken. And that sequence of steps, in my view, has to begin 
with the UK recognizing that there is a trust deficit in the relationship and that the trust deficit has to be fixed. With, and, and there is a whole set of ideas I think that we could talk about, but I mm -hmm. think the most essential ingredient to this is you know, settling the Northern Ireland protocol question and then just restoring a more functional way of operating uh, that relationship between the UK officials, between the European Commission officials, its other partners, and then at the political level, uh, you know, having more regular contact between the European Commission president, between the UK prime minister. And, you know, we are seeing some signs that that is, you know, being restored, but we are still very long way away from actually building that confidence back in. Now, just, mm, Paul. Sorry, so that to be clear, as far as you're concerned, the ball is very much in the UK's court in order to be more proactive in this area, not wait for the commission to to make the first move. It's up to the to the, the UK. Uh, and, okay, and therefore you say in your paper, the, the UK should agree, well, there should be agreement on a, what you call a package of confidence building measures. Could you be a bit more specific of them for the benefit of people watching us, what you mean by some of these confidence building measures? I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, it should be a, um, I think, well, let me, let me begin differently. I think the worst thing that can happen is a UK prime minister, whether it is the current prime minister or the future prime minister, it doesn't really matter, just going to Brussels with the ask of negotiating demands like negotiating mutual recognition of conformity assessment, like professional qualifications, you know, a, a, a set of very sensible steps that the relationship is functioning without actually investing first in the political relationship itself. Because I think if you do want to have a situation where you, where you are able to achieve some of those, where you are able to negotiate some of those asks, there is a whole big exercise that has to precede that a whole big exercise in a restoring trust, but actually in, you know, becoming clearer internally within the UK about some of the strategic choices that the country has to make. And you asked me, Paul, about the, you know, the package of confidence building measures that I think needs to be put in place as part of that first step. I think it's very simple things like, you know, helping people get through the borders more easily. Um, you know, potentially simplifying some of the visa requirements that people face when they when they are applying for um, for, for uh, when they want to travel to the EU or to the UK. Uh, it is uh, fixing some of the issues around mobility. I mean, those are all things that you know don't necessarily have to be tied in with the broader question of how the trade and cooperation agreement should be revisited after 2025 when the, when, when the provision on the review of the DCA kicks in. Those are the things that can be done beforehand, but they do require uh, you know, a very careful approach. And I think then there is a step on the UK side that the, the government has to take, which is to make, make some kind of substantive offer to the other side on some of the things that the EU wants from the, from the UK. I think there's a broad recognition that the UK has been a very important player uh, in providing military uh, assistance to Ukraine. I think there is a real desire in EU institutions and in EU capitals to see more structured form of cooperation on questions of foreign policy and questions of tackling climate change and regulating you know, um, big tech and social media companies. So I think those are all areas where the UK can actually offer something quite substantive. But it has to be it has to be reciprocal. It can't be just one-sided. And it has to show value that the UK is willing to engage with those questions and that ha it has a, a stake in, in a broader European project, not the EU, but in the prosperity of the European continent as a whole. 
Okay, there's, there's a quite a common understanding, and it's understandable to the extent that people think, to the extent that they think at all about Brexit, if they're not too bored by it, that uh, the negotiations came to a conclusion at the end of 2020 with the adoption of the very last minute of the Trade Cooperation Agreement, and then, which sets out there'll be a, some kind of review of this, of this TCA in, five years later, 2025, which kind of suggests that in between time, there's, there's no scope at all. There's no mechanism, if you like, without being too bureaucratic or legalistic for discussion about cooperation. But you're suggesting that with through realpolitik, if nothing else, and you mentioned the Ukraine war, let's not just wait for the TCA review, which we'll come to because you've talked about it in your report, uh, for, for discussion on, on cooperation. Let's just get on with it now and find ways to cooperate uh, while waiting for the review, which will take place in three or four years' time. I think that's right. I mean, the reality is, you know, for that to happen, the Northern Ireland Protocol question will need to be settled. I think, there, you know, I don't think there should be under any illusion, illusion that until there is um, a durable solution to the Northern Ireland Protocol dilemma, it will be next to impossible to restore some of that constructive spirit in which to conduct that level of cooperation. Um, and I think, you know, there is a big question about what would happen, uh, just going back to where we began our discussion, you know, if the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, would refuse to engage uh, with any kind of compromise that may be struck between the UK and the EU. But, you know, putting that big, big question mark aside for now, I think I think there is nothing stopping you know the, the British government in, in you know in the coming years to to try to think very strategically about what that kind of confidence building package might be, and 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 do it with a view of um, you know paving the ground for something more constructive to then come out of that TCA review process that you mentioned. Because it seems also that when it when when an issue is important enough, like the Ukraine war, the UK, to be fair, has been uh, very open to discussing with the EU, EU to be fair, uh, on sanctions and humanitarian aid, cooperation, all that kind of stuff. They they haven't said, well, the Northern Ireland Protocol is in the way, therefore we shouldn't cooperate. They haven't said, well, we haven't got a, the, the deadline yet for the TCA review. They've just gone, gone ahead and done it. Do you understand why in some areas of policy, and cooperation, this this collaboration does work and just happens, and in other areas it does not. I mean, I think Ukraine and cooperation around the Ukrainian sanction is very much an exception to, I think, what is now the new normal, which is that most of the communication, most of the regular dialogue and communication between the UK government and the European institutions has been effectively cut, unfortunately. Uh, I, think, I think there is a recognition that on Ukraine and and uh, and the consequences of uh, Russia's invasion into Ukraine, I think there needs to be a very strategic level of cooperation. And that does thankfully happen. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, it shouldn't be an exception. I think it should be something that applies more broadly to the relationship as a whole, because it's not just Ukraine that is in mutual interest of the UK and the EU. It is, you know, the position on China. It is the position on how to deal with the U.S. in light of the Inflation Reduction Act and, mm -hmm. you know, the green subsidy package that uh, the Biden administration is launching. I think, you know, those are the, you know, the kind of questions that the U.K. and the EU are facing in light of some of these very strategic ch challenges are very much the same. And there needs to be a degree of cooperation and coordination on what, what, what happens. 
Um, you know, similarly in the area of climate change and, you know, energy cooperation, there's been a little bit of progress, but, you know, there is so much more that could be done just with a, with a bit of political leeway, with a bit of more strategic dialogue on some of these questions. So I think that's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of space where clearly there is an opportunity to do something even before the TCA is uh, up for review. It's interesting when I asked you about the ball is in the UK's court to ask for certain things, which then almost automatically invites a, a sort of rhetoric about uh, us asking, us the UK in this case, asking for things that maybe the UK doesn't want to want to deliver or to accept. And so um, to my point, you're talking about like climate change, for example, and counterterrorism, for example, uh, kind of win-win situation. But I'll just quote to you a couple of questions from the audience, um, Anton. One from Glenn Vaughan, a senior advisor at RP People. Has the EU27 public been convinced enough that leaving is a bad idea for the EU to start being more accommodating to the UK? See that language about the UK having to ask and then the EU deciding whether to accept. And it's not a similar question, but in the same vein, from Mark English, who used to work at the European Commission, uh, you say, he's quoted back at you, you, you UK, UK neglected offensive asks in desperation to get an oven-ready deal and that the CCA favours the EU. So why would the EU make concessions now, especially when the trust deficit and UK political instability, which an election may or may not temporarily solve? You see the point that whereas on the one hand, the, the rhetoric about the UK having to ask and therefore the EU deciding whether it wants to accept on the one hand and then the other side of trying to identify win-win situations where it's a no-brainer, where the two sides equally come to the conclusion that they have to and should work together. Yeah, so I think on the first question, I think has there been a, a shift in the way that uh, the EU member states now see uh, the decision to leave the EU? I don't think fundamentally there has been a shift, uh, frankly, not, 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 not based on the conversations I've had with people. But I think it is true that I think um, there is now recognition that, uh, broadly speaking at least, there is a space for finding a different more balanced, more strategic kind of relationship. And I think there is a recognition that the current, you know, uh, very baseline deal that was negotiated uh, is, is really not a very sustainable way on sustainable basis on which to have a, a deep cooperation. So I think, I think there is that, but I don't think there has been a, you know, uh, there has been a sudden warming up to the UK as a result of you know, just a few weeks of uh, better atmospherics on the Northern Ireland protocol question or anything like that. I think on um, Mark's question, which is about why the EU should should care now, I think it's a really a really great question and really fundamental to to thinking about um, about what can be actually achieved on the edges of the TCA by way of improving uh, the current agreement. Because I think it is absolutely right that. We shouldn't be, again, under any illusion that the EU is suddenly going to change um, its, uh, the way it engages with third countries, which it includes the UK uh, at the moment. Uh, I think it, it, it is very clear that the EU will want to defend its, uh, um, its what, what, what it sees as its essential interests, the question of the single market integrity and, uh, uh, you know, potential potential gains from Brexit, whether it is on financial services or on, on aspects of the manufacturing goods and bringing some of the, uh, some of the traders uh, back into the uh, EU. So I think some of those things will stay in place and I don't think they will fundamentally, the EU will fundamentally change its calculus. But I do think that 
you know, the UK can also make a reasonable case that this is not this is not just about a government asking for something from the EU, but actually government putting something on the table. Uh, that's you know the government would be if if the government would be willing to put something on the table and make a substantive offer on something that the other side actually wants, then there is a potential quid pro quo. So I think it's about finding that balance, and you know it will require a whole set of very different kind of conversations that ones that, that you know the UK and the EU are having now. It will require a different context for those conversations, and I you know I would just remind people that you know that that context will be there because you know at the time when that discussion will probably be on the table. We might have a new government in London, and we might actually have a new commission in Brussels. So I think, you know, a lot can potentially change in in the next 18, 24 months. And uh, and I think it it is really important to start thinking about what we actually want out of the process, uh, you know, as, as soon as we can. Well, without jumping the gun too much about a possible change in government, but let me put you a specific question, very specific question, again, from the audience from Jonathan Little. Principal Advisor, Post-CAP Agricultural Policy at Natural England. Your report is coy, he says, Jonathan, about concluding that the UK will need to accept dynamically aligning to EU rules on veterinary standards. If you were advising the Labour Party, would you not suggest they they confirm before the next election they would make such a concession in order to facilitate frictionless trade? And in your report, you do say that frictionless trade is... uh, is impossible, but substantial reductions are possible. I, I think again, it's a it's a fantastic question because I think there, there you know, it, it just demonstrates there are still some of those trade offs that just won't disappear simply because you know something will change in the political relationship. Um, I think the way I would think about it, question is the UK government, whether it is present or future government, needs to think very clearly about the domestic choices it makes. It needs to be very clear about what, what future domestic food standards the next government wants to protect and what are the ways in which it wants to protect some of those standards. In my view, and this is the recommendation I made in the paper, I think it should, there should be a very upfront legislative commitment to regulate at least in the same way, at, at least in to the same objectives and very similar outcomes to the way that the EU is doing it, because you know it is broadly in the UK's interest that that level of protection is 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 maintained for domestic and for regulatory reasons. So I don't think there is any obvious case for deregulating on food safety standards, not as a matter of negotiating something better with the EU, but as a matter of domestic as choice, as a matter of sovereign choice. That's post Brexit protection makes. And I think if you if you think about it in that context, I think it's very difficult to make a case for diverging substantially on, on food safety standards uh, and on a set of SPS related issues. And I think there is a very strong case for a form of alignment uh, with the EU on those on those um, issues, uh, both as a way of um, putting the Northern Ireland Protocol on a more stable footing but also um, as a way of reducing some of that friction between the UK and the EU in trading agri-food products. Uh, as you Paul say, I mean, again, we should be absolutely clear, clear it does not mean frictionless trade. You know, mm. there would still be a degree of friction simply by the virtue of the UK being outside of the EU customs union. There will still be a piece of paper that somebody will need to fill to move a good of animal origin from the UK to the EU. But there is a whole spectrum of things that can be done, which reduce some of those requirements 
and which make which make it easier for people to trade some of these things. So I don't think it's about you know trying to you know cherry pick bits of the single market where the UK could rejoin essentially. Uh, but but it, it it is about finding a new balance um, which is more practical and more functional, uh, whilst recognizing the realities which exist on both sides. Well, even even more specific follow up question, Jonathan, which we'll try and deal with briefly, if you don't mind. Again, without jumping the gun about potential changes of government in the UK, but Jonathan asked the second question: What would be the relative merits of Labour committing to use the five year review of the TCA Trade Cooperation Agreement to internalise an SPS deal into the wider TCA to make it harder for a future Eurosceptic Conservative administration to strike down what would otherwise be standalone bolt on deals? Any answer to Jonathan on that second question? I mean, I, I, you know, on the on the on the question of SPS deal, I think um, one of the recommendations I, I do make in the paper on on this particular question is to is to is to essentially come uh, come uh, closer to the EU and become more aligned with EU SPS regime as a matter of domestic choice, uh, and I think it will be. I think then the question is how do you construct the governance around that system in a way that allows the EU to be able to essentially respond if something changes in the UK domestic context. So you know, if for example, uh, the the you know the food safety standards in the future became reduced for some reason because you know the future government may change whatever else, you know there could be a mechanism to ensure that the EU is able to. Uh, essentially put up some of the more stringent controls. Uh, uh, but, 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 you know, I think it's, it, it, it is fundamentally about constructing a set of governance arrangement. Uh, and I don't think it's impossible, you know, other countries have done it. Uh, I don't think, that, you know, there is a reason why the UK and the EU uh, and, and a more constructive world would not be able to do it. But, you know, quite a lot needs to happen before we get to that place, I think. Um, so I think while I'm, I'm, I'm broadly, you know, op optimistic that some things can, can change and improve, I think uh, qu quite a lot of the political uh, fundamentals need to fall into place before that can happen. Right. Well, we're majoring big time on the politics now. A question from um, Richard Corbett, the former MEP, uh, Deputy Chief of Staff at the European Parliament as well. Uh, question to you, Anton. Do you think that the slow but steady shift of UK public opinion to a large majority saying Brexit was a mistake should make it easier for the Labour leadership, uh, at least, and the others to be more outspoken? Have you reached the point where a forlorn attempt to placate a dwindling number of voters who still think that Brexit was a good idea risks alienating a larger and growing number of voters who are critical of Brexit? And before you answer, you do start your report by saying the UK's political leaders can no longer hide from Brexit. They need to openly acknowledge its consequences and set out a plan to fix them. But it's critical of all the major political parties there. I, th I think that's right, because, um, you know, I think, um, you know, when we did the polling uh, last, last autumn, it was a fairly comprehensive set of uh, questions that we asked the public. And when you look at some of the regional breakdown of, of the views, uh, on the questions which ask people about the consequences of Brexit and how positive or negative they perceive Brexit to be, uh, if, you, if you split that question by the regional breakdown, essentially, what you see is actually that you know, people are mostly concerned about Brexit in Scotland, which is not surprising, in Northern Ireland, again, which is not surprising, and then followed by Northeast of England. 
So there is actually quite a lot of, it appears there's quite a lot of, uh, of the negative perceptions of Brexit in the so-called red wall seats and political constituencies which voted for Brexit, uh, but which turned uh, blue in 2019. So I think there is a bit of really interesting kind of regional dynamics. And, you know, there is a, probably a big open question for somebody studying this in, in more detail to ask why that is the case. Does it have to do with any of the kind of trade frictions that have been created, uh, given that that region is, is so much uh, uh, more heavily dependent on manufacturing exports to the EU? I don't know. I'm just kind of assuming here about, but I think there, you know, that, that is one, one piece of dynamic, which is really interesting. And the reason why I'm raising it is because I think it does potentially open up a little bit of space for labor to be more ambitious, uh, to be more uh, upfront about the consequences of, uh, of Brexit, strike the, the right balance between acknowledging those consequences and then not wanting to revisit the old battles between rejoining the EU or staying outside or, you know, potentially rejoining the uh, now. You know, I think that's a really interesting, a really interesting uh, thing uh, to be watching for. I think, um, you know, I think it does require quite a lot of openness and honesty about some of these consequences. Um, and, you know, uh, 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 I, I don't. I don't think we, you know any any political leader of any political persuasion should be trying to hide behind uh, behind that right now. Right. You said one of the other tasks you mentioned in your report is for the UK to develop what you call a clear, a coherent domestic European strategy, uh, and by that you mean a new domestic regulatory strategy and a new diplomatic strategy. And there's a question here linked to that, uh, Anton, from John Pete uh, from The Economist, uh, UK editor, editor at The Economist. Can Macron's, everyone now calls it Macron's, European political community become a helpful forum for restoring trust and mending EU-UK relations at heads of government level, or is it likely to be, to be just another insignificant talking shop? What do you think about the EPC? So, I mean, I think the EPC, you know, uh, to give credit to this trust in one of the, you know, uh, 45 days of her premiership, she made at least one right choice, which was to 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 uh, join the meeting of the European leaders in in uh, the European political community. Um, uh, and I think it was the right decision because you know yes, it is just a talking shop. Yes, it doesn't have a secretariat. It doesn't have any administrative function that could actually carry through some of the agendas that the European leaders discuss. But you know, in, in the context, in the political context in which we are now in with Ukraine, with the energy crisis, with all these big questions facing the future of the European continent as a whole, I think it is a useful thing for European leaders to get together every nine, 12 months and talk about these things. So I think, you know, I think it does fulfill the function. I'm, I'm a little bit uh, more skeptical about whether it could actually leads to a substantive change in the way that UK-EU relations are conducted in the next couple of years. I don't think it really provides the kind of depth of engagement that you would need on those respective issues. But that's not to say that it, it's a you know it's not a useful instrument for engagement. Uh, so I think I think there, there you know it's 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 definitely a great thing that the UK is now part of the, those discussions that uh, I think the third meeting of the EPC will be hosted in London, if I'm not mistaken. So I think, you know, those are all encouraging signs, but I, I don't think we should be pinning our hopes on the EPC as a main mechanism for, uh, for you know, fixing Brexit or, you know, dealing with some of those consequences of Brexit.
Well, let me take you back then to this idea in your report about the UK needs to articulate a new domestic regulatory strategy. It's true, I think, to be fair, even some of the Brexiters would accept when the Remainers or people who are neutral complain, where's the strategy post-Brexit? You won the referendum six and a half years ago. Where's your strategy for, uh, for dealing with regulation? Uh, not just regulatory alignment with, with Europe, quote unquote, but your own regulatory policy. Um, what what needs to be? What does the UK need to be done? Uh, need to do to 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 make the most of its new sort of independence from Europe? Well, I think it's a really fundamental question. I think which actually, you know, um, <clears throat> I think in many ways uh, is the um, uh, the homework that the UK needs to do before actually. Uh, 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 you know, asking for anything uh, from the EU in the TCA review process. And, you know, it just takes us back to the discussion on SPS standards and food safety. You know, if the UK doesn't know what kind of domestic choices it wants to make on food safety standards, you know, and which bits of the food safety are key, it wants to have a different level of protection than the EU, then it's very difficult to make a convincing case to the EU or to anybody else, any other trading partner, that you want to get something out of a trade arrangement with them, which is, you know, less than what they ask of other countries, other trading partners. So I think I think that you know it's absolutely essential that the UK invests a substantive amount of effort and resource in trying to systematically assess the areas in which there are potential benefits from taking a different approach from the EU. And, you know, there, there may be very legitimate interests on the UK side. It may be because, you know, some of the EU regulations is not really fit for purpose for the UK domestic purposes, or it may be because the UK will choose on the basis of its existing regulations to allow regulators to have more leeway to be able to innovate in some regulatory spaces that would be otherwise very difficult within the current EU regulatory structures. And those are, you know, very legitimate things to be pursuing. But there needs to be an evidence, there needs to be an assessment and a process underpinning that assessment that takes us to that conclusion. If that process is simply scrapping all EU-derived law, as the government seems to be doing with the retained EU law bill, that's simply not a very sound basis on which to make that decision. It's not a very sound basis to make that decision out of, you know, from the point of view of good policy making, uh, but also from the point of view of, you know, democratic uh, uh, democratic legislation making. So I think, I think you know, what I, all I'm saying is, you know, on some of these things, you know, there, we may get to the conclusion where, you know, the UK will identify a couple of areas where it is in its interest to have a slightly different regulatory approach. But I think fundamentally, I think that's the kind of homework that the UK needs to be able to do itself. And only on that basis, it can get, then go to the EU and say, look, we have concluded domestically that on food safety, we have very similar regulatory objectives, if not the same. We have very sim similar regulatory outcomes that our um, legislation is is, um, is asking us to pursue. Uh, so why not why not take a, a common approach to managing some of these regulatory questions? And you know, and that that should include taking a very proactive, I think, uh, and. Uh, sovereign decision to align with EU regulations in areas where it is in the UK's clear, clear economic interest. Do you think the UK still government still harbours serious ambitions to be some kind of Singapore on terms, this low regulation, low tax uh, economy? Uh, because until now, there's been a very strong suspicion on the EU side, right, that that is still a serious ambition of the UK. 
because uh, if it's not, it seems to be quite a, a waste of effort and, and energy, especially in this context of trust building, if the government, the UK side, is not actually pursuing it anymore, and therefore the grounds of suspicion of the EU should uh, are no longer valid. I mean, I think I think that's uh, I think that's a really interesting question, and we, I don't think we have a clear answer to that question yet, frankly, because I think you know if you look at the retain the EU law bill, which is the main legislative instrument of this government to pursue you know, the regulatory agenda. It is essentially a piece of legislation that the Sunak administration uh, inherited from Liz Truss uh, and, you know, even from Boris Johnson's days. So I think, you know, it is not entirely clear how how keen the current government is on really uh, having that piece of legislation in the statute book. And it is entirely plausible they will try to amend it, you know, in, in ways that will actually uh, change some of the um, potential um, implications of that, but it is it is true. It's not going to be easy, I think, for the government because remember the prime minister is in a really difficult position with his own uh, with his own backbenchers. He's not uh, he's not uh, appearing particularly strong on all kinds of questions, not just this. And uh, as soon as he tries to water down the retained EU law bill, he will face substantive opposition, I think, from. From the part of his uh, uh, backbenchers who who've been the main advocates of, of this whole approach to regulation, but I think you know the key the key point probably that I would make is it's not the same thing to have to be aiming for better regulation than aiming for deregulation. I think you know to have better regulation, you don't have to necessarily deregulate things. You can make things simpler. You can make things more streamlined in your own domestic regulatory system. But you you don't have to deregulate. You don't have to minimize the level of public protection that certain regulations are asking for. So I think you know that's the key point. I think which is really important in all this, and one I think which uh, I think I, I, I haven't seen evidence that you know th this government or the previous uh, two governments have really taken a full account of. Yeah. As a related question, I think from, from Malcolm Harbour, the former member of the European Parliament from the Conservative Party, your, Mark, your question is quite brief and succinct, Mark, Malcolm, so I hope I interpret it correctly. He asked you, what does the EU want from the UK? In the Brexit negotiations, the EU put a priority on the UK maintaining, presumably the UK's insistence on maintaining state aid rules. But this is now a big issue, as you know, in the EU itself, right? Because we know from that, E27, there's a big debate about the level of state aid, especially in large member states like um, France and Germany. So do you, do you think that, that that's still an issue for, for ongoing discussions, especially when we come to a, the TCA review? I don't think it will be a big problem, frankly. And the reason for that is, I think, twofold. One is uh, that the UK now has a domestic subsidy control system, which is essentially very similar but slightly different from the EU state aid regime. You have to remember that back in 2020 and indeed in 2019, when the protocol was being renegotiated, the UK didn't have that system in place. It didn't have domestic subsidy control policy. So, you know, that, that, that I think the political calculation on, uh, on the EU side with respect to state aid was quite different. There was just a big concern that, you know, the UK's domestic subsidy control regime might not be sufficient and the whole negotiation during the PCA level playing uh, field provision uh, chapter was essentially about how do you construct uh, a robust enough domestic regime. Um, so I think, you know, I think there is a degree of assurance that the EU now has of the UK's 
commitments and state aid. But I think that the second piece of context, which is important, is also really interesting and potentially crucial, which is that the EU is now toying with the idea of essentially, you know, making uh, its own state aid regime a little bit different and more flexible, mm. just in light of the pandemic uh, and uh, the massive subsidies that have been granted during that time, but actually also in, in current discussions about, you know, how to respond to what I, what I previously mentioned, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and what kind of exemptions that may require. So I think, you know, it's, it's a whole area that I think the EU will need to, I think, get a clear idea of what, what they want themselves first before we actually think about, you know, what's, what's the ask from the UK maybe. But I think, I think that whole question has now uh, gained a little bit less relevance. Right. Well, we haven't talked much about, not just in this discussion, but elsewhere maybe, is the role of, of the business community. Like we talk about regulation and that impacts them more than anybody else, obviously, as a front line. Um, there's, there's a question here from Francesca Lentini, the Railway Industry Association. She says, you mentioned it is fundamental that the UK rebuilds trust with the EU. Do you have any advice for trade associations and the role they can play in rebuilding this trust? And if I may add to your question, Francesca, the kind of related question also, which is also under discussed, frankly, is the extent to which the industry should speak out more uh, and uh, and tell the government what it, it, it the industry thinks the, the government should be doing in, the, in this post-Brexit world when it, as far as their interests are concerned. I think, again, it's a really interesting question because I think the position that business found itself in, at, at least with respect to, you know, post-Brexit issues, was a fairly tricky one. I think, you know, there is a, a broad recognition in the business community that, you know, a whole there is a whole suite of problems that could be resolved in a more constructive way uh, if, if we had a more constructive relationship. But at the same time, I think businesses were just really concerned that as soon as they raise those problems with the governments, that will essentially make it very difficult for them to access ministers and access, you know, civil servants and people who matter because, you know, nobody in, in, in the UK system wants to be thinking about those questions very, very actively. So I think, you know, there is a very legitimate concern that, you know, the business community has had in the last couple of uh, years, really, since, since Brexit happened, about, you know, how vocal they can be. But I think, again, if, if, if you know, if the context changes and if we do end up in a different uh, position in a couple of years' time, I think it it will change too how in, how business should, should engage with some of these fundamental questions about the future. And I think you know what I would what I would say is that, and this is one of the points in my paper is that the TCA review process I think should be a real vehicle for right. the government to get businesses on side and to ask businesses what kind of changes would they want to see in the implementation and in the functioning of the trade and cooperation agreement. And I think let me. Let me cut it there, Anton, because that's in the few minutes, forgive me, in the last few minutes uh, available to us. Let's talk about the last part of your report, which is exactly that, the, the TCA review. And uh, you're starting to, so my question was to you, was well, give me some examples of how the TCA review could operate in practice, because I don't know about you, you've done probably more soundings than I have, but it, I find it remarkably uh, striking how little attention has been paid so far, maybe to what this review should even look like. I mean, to be fair, 
politicians, civil servants have their hands full doing other things at the moment. But uh, to what extent, maybe to start off this, this last part of our chat, uh, is the TCA review uh, a potentially uh, important vehicle or is there a danger for all sorts of reasons getting in the way that it just becomes a slightly bureaucratic, tedious kind of uh, box ticking exercise? I think that is the danger, uh, frankly. I think I think that the CA review process can uh, can take many different shapes and forms. You know, it can be a very technocratic process, as you said, Paul, essentially just reviewing the implementation of the agreement, which happens anyway in the working groups and specialized committees now. Or it can be something more fundamental. It can be a political moment to revisit some of the aspects of the TCA, which in the view of one party, either the UK or the EU, are not working quite well. Now, it, it wouldn't be unprecedented to use the review clause in a trade agreement for that, you know, for that purpose. I think there were examples where the EU itself in the past used some of those review clauses it has with other partners, like I think most recently Chile, in, in trying to reopen some of the more fundamental questions and to, so, so to speak, modernize those trade agreements. So I don't think it will be unprecedented in that way, but I think it will really depend on what London wants, on what the government of the day wants at that point. Do they want to use it as a very quiet technocratic exercise, in which case it is probably mostly, you know, largely not very significant, or do they want to use it as a political moment to say, look, the TCA as an agreement is not working exactly as it should, it is unbalanced in some ways, it does not provide opportunities for engaging on those strategic questions that we have in common and therefore we think you know that is a reasonable set of changes that we can make to it uh, in which case you know that process will take some time and it's not going to be automatic it will you know as as we all know i think the eu has very specific ways of operating you know it is a community of 27 member states there is a process that needs to lead up to it and uh, you know it, it might potentially take a couple of years but but i think it is interesting because i think at that point when at the end of 2025 26 it is not just um, the tca that will be up for review but it's also some of the energy arrangements mm. uh, it is also the fisheries arrangement so i think there will be a couple of different questions that will crop up and that will make people think should we just look at this in a in a you know in in, in at this in a more a pragmatic way should we just think about this a little bit differently um, and without putting words in your mouth, do you think that TCA review in principle could be a vehicle, an opportunity rather, for business groups, of society, trade unions, everybody out there to, to make their case and, and put, frankly, put pressure on the government? Or is the government likely to be keen to maybe to give the impression that they are in charge and that uh, only other people get involved if we invite them to get involved? I mean, in other words, how much of a kind of open democratic exercise could the review turn out to be? I mean, I, you know, my, my view, you won't be surprised to hear that, yeah, you know, I think the government of, of that day should then use the TCA review process to get businesses on side and to really try to get the input from businesses about what's not working in the TCA and what can be improved. Um, and I think businesses should think about it in this context, you know, that there will be some kind of process leading up to the TCA review. And that would be a good opportunity for businesses to engage with some of those questions in uh, in a fairly neutral, non-political way, uh, that doesn't have to, you know, link up to the whole Brexit baggage that we that we've all uh, seen. So I think I think there will be an opportunity, and I, I think businesses should think about it like that. Uh, 
but uh, you know, I think I think uh, frankly, I I don't think that very many people have have given a huge amount of thought to what that person that will actually look like. I, I haven't seen any indications on either the UK or the EU side that that process is really happening. So I think we're quite a long way off, even though it's only two years. Yeah. Well, you do point out in your paper that the, as we speak, the TCA does lack a strategic forum or an instrument for political level dialogue. And you suggest that what needs to be done is to build a new strategic pillar with the revised TCA after during the, and after the review, which allows the UK and EU, as you say, to advance bilateral cooperation in areas of, of shared interest. So that's, it sounds maybe again, rather technocratic, bureaucratic, but we are talking also about structures and, and, and ways in which the, um, the, the UK and EU engage in a more sort of structured, systematic, strategic uh, way? I think, well, I think, you know, there is, um, I think that's exactly right. So, um, you know, what, what we are suggesting is, uh, and this takes us again back to the beginning of our discussion, is there are real opportunities to think about those strategic questions where the UK and the EU have mutual interests in the world, whether it is questions of external security and defense cooperation, questions of foreign policy, questions of cross-border regulation on finance or technology, digital markets. You know, you can list probably 10, 15 areas where there's very strong commonality of interests. And I think at the moment, if you look at the TCA as it is constructed, there are very few opportunities to engage on any of these questions. In fact, there are none. You know, TCA and the Partnership Council, which is the main institution for managing TCA, is essentially about problem solving. It's not about building positive agendas. It's not about building more strategic, you know, agendas around things that actually matter to both sides. So there's a real gap in the TCA as it is constructed at the moment in not being able to offer ways and channels for discussing those questions. And, you know, people ask, why do we need more institutions? Why do we need more dialogues, things like that? Well, you know, I mean, the sad truth is, you know, in, 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 these, in these international, you know, matters, you need to get together to be able to talk about things. And some of these things essentially function as signaling mechanisms for officials to, to be able to go to the other side, their counterparts, and say, look, you know, within, within the auspices of this working group, we can actually get together every couple of weeks and talk about these things. So, you know, there is quite a lot that these things can actually achieve in practice if there is political appetite to actually get them moving. So I think that's the kind of broad, um, broad recommendation that we would make here. Um, Lisa Carroll, a Brexit correspondent at The Guardian, asks, don't forget, she says to us and to you in particular, that in 2024, the Northern Ireland Protocol is also voted on in Stormont, if Stormont is actually sitting. Uh, might that destabilise things again, Anton, she asks. Well, I mean, I, you know, my, my view on the whole Northern Ireland Protocol situation right now is uh, that, you know, even if we do get to an agreement, which I think we will probably get to some, some kind of agreement by April, I think it will be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to get uh, the DUP back into the institutions, which uh, I think is going to create a huge political challenge. And I think it will keep, you know, the protocol question on the table for the foreseeable future, frankly. Because I think, you know, what happened in the last two years, and this is the real kind of tragedy of the current situation, is that as the government, as the UK government moved to the extreme, it encouraged to the DUP to move to an even greater extreme. So the expectations are now set at such a high level 
within the parts of the unionist community in Northern Ireland, that it will be virtually impossible to satisfy them with any kind of compromise that will be struck before April. Now, if that if that's correct, and you know, I, I hope I'm completely wrong on this, but if that's correct, then I think it will be a question that will keep cropping up, unfortunately, for the next couple of years, I, I'm afraid. And I think Lisa is completely right to point out uh, the Sturmond vote that's supposed to happen in 2024. And I think there is a big question, you know, if, if there, obviously we don't have a Northern Ireland Assembly, then that vote effectively can't happen. And, you know, there will be questions around how, you know, what else can be done. So I think, you know, uh, it's, 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 I think Lisa is right. I think it is the political, you know, dimension of the protocol question, I think is a really significant one. And uh, I think it will be, it will take a real long time for us to find a more uh, stable equilibrium. Right. Well, maybe one last question, and we have run out of time, unfortunately. Um, how, what kind of reaction have you had to your report since it was first published uh, just the end of last year? Um, how, how receptive have, have various uh, groups been to it? Uh, is it seen as a, a useful, uh, over-optimistic, over-pessimistic? What has the general reaction been? I mean, the one thing that has actually really surprised me in a positive way is the, you know, the amount of responses from the business community. I think there is now, uh, I think there is now, a, a, you know, much more appetite, I think, to ask the question of, you know, what would we want from a better, more functional relationship between the UK and the EU? How do we envisage it for our sector, for our industry, for our, you know, trade association, our business? And, uh, you know, I think that's the question that people will be asking throughout 2023. Um, as you know, as there are indications that you know we, we might get to a more constructive relationship a couple of years down the line. So, uh, so I think that you know I've been I've been really surprised by that, and uh, I think it's a pretty good sign. And with that, thank you again, Manton. Thank you very much for having me, Paul. Pleasure.